0: The title of this talk is Awakening, We Got What It Takes. Through our practice, we begin to understand this body-mind continuum in a radically different way, in a radically new way. We begin to understand what makes up this body-mind continuum, what are the component parts of what we call body, of what we call mind, and what characteristics underlie uh, those component parts. We begin to know this not in psychological ways, not in through concepts of science or psychology, though those are helpful ways for us in our lives. But we begin to know this through the training of moment-to-moment mindfulness, this training of sati-patana, this powerful or extraordinary kind of mindfulness that we bring to every moment's experience. And through this, we begin to see the ever-changing nature of what is called reality, moment to moment, the ever-changing unfolding of this body-mind continuum. We see, or it is understood more deeply, more completely, more honestly as the practice continues. There's greater transparency in this kind of understanding. So, through this training of bare attention, we learn to experience each moment not through the lens of the habitual tendencies. But with what is called bare attention, attention that isn't uh, that nothing is added onto, no judging, no commenting, uh, nothing else. just this bare attention. I think I've said a few times, maybe not here, but through the years, Upandita used to ask me, "What color lenses are you wearing today?" Yogi Kamala, when I'd come in, and there would be some unnoticeable to me, but quite noticeable to him, some way of clinging to experience, some way of being aversive to experience. And that would be somehow picked up, and he would ask me, what color lenses are you wearing today? So it is this kind of bare attention, free of those lenses this ability to see each moment's experience with uh, the the Tibetans call it naked awareness, naked awareness. So in this way, the practice begins to reflect more and more each moment with a kind of pristine clarity. So Joseph has been giving teachings on the Satipatthana Sutta, And in those teachings, he talks about, or the Buddha talks about, this kind of bare attention brought to every experience, whether sitting, walking, standing, or lying down in each of the four postures. And if we're careful, all of the sub-postures, the bending, the twisting, the reaching, all of the ways that the body uh, makes movement, or in the stillness of the body. So through this practice of the Satipatthana Sutta, the results of this is a maturing of strengths that are already within this body, mind, and continuum, but are being nurtured by mindfulness. So the Buddha said, if the four foundations of mindfulness our practice persistently and repeatedly the seven factors of enlightenment will be automatically and fully developed so what the buddha is promising here is that if we do our practice persistently and repeatedly these seven factors will be fully developed so this is an incredible uh, assurance promise of what can happen in our practice. And that is why in uh, practices when we do this kind of intensive practice, for example, with one of our teachers, Sayada Upandita, there's a, um, a large uh, part of our practice is in between the sitting and the walking. I used to be very resistant when I went to Burma about the times when we would have to, in a line, walk from the sitting hall to the um, to the dining hall, and even in the dining hall, we'd have to eat very, very mindfully. But from the sitting hall to the dining hall, it's about nine hundred and fifty something steps. I <laughs> I counted one time, as more or less, and. Uh, During that time in line, I was so resistant to being at the pace with everybody else and and just being mindful, but it slowed my practice down and it really made me uh, see the benefits of being mindful in between the sitting and the walking. And then when we got, say, to the eating hall where um, we did everything as mindfully also as possible uh, we'd all be sitting there and Seda upandito would usually come in late because most of the time he would be receiving the the visitors if there were any who had offered dana for that meal so he would come in late along with the visitors and then we would all usually be seated or almost seated and he would come by and actually, come by to the tables, and he would look to see if we were eating properly. But he would also look to see if we were being very, very mindful. And so there would be this uh, this focus, this light on uh, mindfulness during every posture. So this is the persistently and repeatedly, because when this happens, then these seven factors are automatically and fully developed. So these seven factors which I'm speaking about tonight are called sometimes the seven factors of purification. We hear that word in the West sometimes. It's called seven factors of purification because these factors begin to purify in the mind and heart greed, hatred, and delusion. Also, these are known as the seven factors of awakening because through this process of purification, wisdom is awakened, the wisdom of seeing uh, reality as it truly is. But traditionally, these, what are called bojangas, the the factors of enlightenment, traditionally they're called the factors of enlightenment, because they are brought, uh, these factors bring us, to uh, enlightenment, to the unconditioned. So just a a different way of expressing what the Buddha expressed uh, a while ago, I said about the four foundations of mindfulness being practiced persistently and repeatedly. The Buddha also talked about these factors of enlightenment or liberation in this way. This is from the numerical discourses of the Buddha, He said, liberation by supreme knowledge, too, O monks, has its nutriment. I declare, it is not without a nutriment. And what is a nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge? The seven factors should be the answer. The seven factors of enlightenment, too, have their nutriment. I declare, they are not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of the seven factors of enlightenment? The four foundations of mindfulness should be the answer. So these seven factors of enlightenment or seven factors of liberation are mindfulness, and I'll go over these one by one, mindfulness, investigation, effort, delight, or what is sometimes called joyful interest, calm, concentration, and equanimity. So these are factors that are already present in the mind stream. And through mindfulness, they're being developed, nurtured, strengthened. So as we practice through the years, uh, we begin to see we're more able to acknowledge these strengths so that as the strengths deepen in our intensive practice here on retreat, they are brought into, into our everyday life, greater skills that we can use to concentrate more, to be more calm, to be able to uh, have the balance of equanimity in our lives, to have an uh, energy that we can complete our tasks with, to have interest in what we're doing in our lives. So no matter what happens outside, no matter what what comes and what obstacles are in our way or what befalls us, no matter what happens inside, more and more there can be an experience of a still forest pool where whatever pebbles are thrown into the pool, from the outside life's experience or from the habitual tendencies that come from within our own hearts, We know through our practice of mindfulness, which empower the other factors, strengthen the other factors, that somehow, in time, the mind will always go back to some clarity, some stillness. The world may be chaotic, but inside we really know that these strengths are there, and we begin to rely on them with greater confidence. So these factors are all being strengthened, awakened, through continuity. That is why in the last days we've been uh, putting more focus on the continuity of practice, the moment-to-moment, balanced, persevering effort. Not this big, you know, charge-added effort, but a very balanced kind of effort. I think each one of us in our own ways, whether it's in little ways or deep ways, profound ways, we begin to see how these wholesome factors of mind bring us an ever-deepening strength of faith in what we're doing, that this practice does indeed have um, a kind of way which we can see that it leads to the end of suffering. So this Dhamma teaching is meant to help you become more aware, to recognize the strengths that are already there in your practice, being developed moment by moment. Um, they're, they're not as easy to see as the hindrances because they're more subtle, they're more refined, they're more porous. But we can recognize them in, in the certain ways that I'll try to help you to acknowledge and recognize them in your practice. The Buddha used to chant this Bhujanga Sutta to those who were ill, to those who were sick. And even today, uh, since the time of the Buddha, this Bhujanga Sutta has been chanted to the to those who were ill. And it's said that... Um, oftentimes those who were ill who would hear this chant of the Bujanga Sutta or who would um, know the chant themselves or know or read the Bhujanga Sutta themselves, but usually it was given by someone else. These people would become healed in some way or better in some way because it would bring out these strong factors already present in one's mind and in a very balanced way. So these are very healing. They empower us with a kind of confidence to go on. Of the seven factors that I uh, talked about, three are energizing factors. They are investigation, effort, and the joyful interest or delight. These are energizing. And these are balanced by the tranquilizing factors uh, and they are calm, concentration, and equanimity. And sometimes these are called the stabilizing factors. There's one linking factor, and that is the really at the head of them all, and this one is mindfulness itself. Mindfulness, it said, develops all the others, it links all the others, and also balances all the others balances the others in just the right degree that we need for that phase of the practice. Sometimes we need more concentration. Sometimes we need more energy. Sometimes we need more of the tranquilizing factors. Sometimes we need more of the energizing factors. So mindfulness, just by applying mindfulness, all of the other uh, factors are there in the right balance. Manindra used to say, When mindfulness is present, all the others come near. And I remember, um, I was just remembering when I was rewriting this talk the first time he told me that. And um, I guess many of you know that we live on uh, Maui, on the island of Maui. And most of my life I've lived there. And I raised my four children there. And I used to take him to the ocean with me. And he would take every opportunity to mention any Dhamma teaching to me. If the number four came up, he would talk about the four noble truths. If the number five came up, he would talk about the five spiritual powers. If you asked him a question, he would go about giving you the answer and until you wouldn't listen anymore. And <laughs> one time Joseph said that One time he went on giving an answer until the last person left. So he really just is a walking Dhamma encyclopedia. And this time we were on the beach and uh, I had the four children with me. And uh, we were walking and playing and doing some things on the beach and splashing each other and all of that. And then uh, Manindra was sitting on the sand, under a tree. And um, then I came near and, you know, came to sit down. How are you? How are things going? What can I get for you? And he said, uh, th- he gave me this little teaching on mindfulness and the seven factors. And he said, you know, uh, mindfulness is like the mother. And when the mother is there, all of the children come, just like all of your children come around you. And so... When mindfulness is there, it's like the mother. It brings all of the uh, other beautiful factors around. I know we don't feel that way about all of our mothers, but that, that's the uh, example that he gave. So as the energizing and tranquilizing factors develop, mindfulness becomes stronger. As we keep persistently and repeatedly with gentle, balanced, persevering effort, mindfulness becomes stronger, and that is why um, people say, "Well, mindfulness is very weak now. well, we can see that some of the other qualities are not yet developed, and mindfulness strengthens all the others, and they in turn strengthen mindfulness to become stronger and stronger to pierce through, to be able to pierce through the illusion of ignorance. Manindra always says, your only job is to be mindful. So if we can remember that, just to be mindful, when that happens, everything else comes about. Everything else happens. So mindfulness, this uh, first factor, is likened to a very clear and clean mirror. One of the great 4th century Taoists, Chuang Su, said it like this. The perfect woman, or man, uses the mind as a mirror. It clings to nothing. It refuses nothing. It receives but does not keep. And this is how mindfulness is. It reflects in detail a very clear experience of the present moment without any bias. It's not liking it, not disliking it, not pushing it away, not holding on to it, not adding anything to it, not taking anything away. It sees everything clearly and very deeply. I still hear Sometimes when I sit, Manindra's voice in his instructions, when he would say, uh, when we sat still and were uh, had our balance of posture and quieted the mind a little bit, he would begin to say, please be mindful of the primary object of the breath, just bringing an attention to the present moment without comparing. And this is a part I remember very clearly, without comparing, without judging, without condemning, without criticizing, without commenting, just bringing a very clear moment of experiencing this moment clearly. And he would say that also about the secondary objects, the objects that would arise apart from the breath, all of the other four foundations of mindfulness to see, to experience every moment without adding anything. This is a very important thing about this bare attention, this extraordinary mindfulness, this sati, pa, this extraordinariness, this kind of extra energy on the object. Sati, mindfulness, pa, extraordinary kind of effort, tana on the object. Of attention. It allows the experience to be uh, before or beyond the world of concept. So we're not into the conceptual world of making a judgment or comparison or a commenting on it. It's in this realm of very profound, sometimes life-changing experience to be able to see life in a radically different way to see what life is made up of. All these various precious moments. One way that I think we can all um, feel this or see this, experience this clearly is um, not too long ago here when there was the full moon. Or in fact, when there's any moon on, on a clear night here, have you ever experienced just looking up at a a clear sky in the evening and seeing the starry sky with a bright moon? And in that moment, with just this ability to uh, experience seeing, noticing what is happening without any filter of I want this to last longer, without any filter of "Oh, I won't like it when the clouds come." Kind of a um, pushing away in the mind, or a kind of a contracting, without any kind of liking or disliking, but with a just a total clarity of experiencing that moment of noticing, realizing the simple beauty of not so much what is being seen, the moon, the objects, the brightness, but realizing the simple beauty of awareness itself, that simple cleanness of awareness itself. There's um, that wonderful Japanese haiku, Gazing at the moon, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So it's this utter simplicity in seeing the emptiness and yet the fullness of everything in that pristine kind of clarity of awareness. This is what mindfulness is all about. And it it goes much deeper than that, of course. Mindfulness with the second factor of investigation helps uh, wisdom to come closer to experience. So the second factor or the first of the energizing factors is investigation. This investigation is activated by mindfulness. In Pali it's called Dhamma Vichaya, Dhamma Vichaya, the investigation of Dhamma, of the truth. Or in a I think in a very simple way, it's the investigation of this truth. This particular moment's truth, not the big existential truth, but this particular moment's truth, it's investigation of the present moment. So we're not investigating the past of what happened in the past. We're not investigating the future, of course, what will happen because of the past or the present. But we're precisely experiencing and investigating the present moment so that uh, you'll notice in interview, we're always trying to bring you back. So what does that feel like right now? What is the residue of that past experience? How is that being experienced in this present moment? So the investigation of the present moment is of what precisely? In the text it says it is of the arising the occurring or the changing and the passing away of this present moment. So very precisely, it is uh, of the arising, the changing, and the dissolving of this present moment. Now, we can't always see the arising. A lot of times there there is just the seeing of the changing moment. The, the dissolving moment can't always be seen. Uh, But there are times when all of this is picked up, is seen by mindfulness and through this energizing quality of investigation, the actual direct experience of impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness of all of experience, meaning to say there is no place that, and nothing that we can hang on to that will give us permanent, lasting happiness. The unsatisfactory dukkha ness of experience and the anatta ness of experience or the impersonality of experience. Not attributing every experience to this is me, this is mine, this is who I am, this happened to me in the past, this will happen to me in the future. It's seeing so closely the present moment that it isn't seen in a personal nature. So this investigation is not by thinking, not by analyzing, not by uh, philosophical or psychological ruminating. This will bring you farther away from the present moment. One time I went to Upandita with um, the report that we usually give, which is very simple. And in the reporting there is always a staying in the present moment with the report explaining what happened in the past moment, but um, uh, explaining what happened in that past moment as we experienced it in the present. And so also in the reporting, um, there is a way in which one reports where there is not the use of I or me or mine. There, was, there would be uh, a report saying, there was the arising of anger and the noticing of it and what was noticed is that the anger occurred in this way it was it felt fiery it was rough it was and then it became slippery and then it disappeared and something like that it can it can happen all different ways that's just one example but there's there was one time when i went to explain something like this to him make a report and then i said something about how i likened what was happening in the mind to um seeing the elemental nature of everything, the fire element, the earth element, the water element, the air element, and even this, even this kind of Dhamma experience, relating it directly to the impersonal nature and, and a Dhamma nature, he stopped me. He he said, Stop. In English he said stop and he said Uh, then through the translator. If you continue in this way, you will go backwards. And so that, it really woke me up to how it's so important to just stay in the present moment, not need to relate it to the past or throw it out into the future in any way because all of this creates a sense of me, recreates it over and over and over again. It's by the continuity, by the connecting and sustaining with each object that this investigation takes place. I think the other night I talked about bringing the uh, mindfulness to the object. So it's aiming, connecting, and sustaining on the object. So there's a kind of rubbing the object. Not too close, not too far away, but in just the right way so that this understanding of anicca, dukkha, anatta can reveal itself very clearly. There was one time when I was giving a report about anger arising. There was a big story around it when I reported this to Sayadaw Pandita, And I told him this. I said, the anger is arising, has been arising over and over again. And it usually arises with this particular story, but we we don't tell the story, of course. And But even so, I said, it arises with this particular story. Get lost in the story. There's this getting lost in the story over and over. And Upandita said something which really helped me. He said, withdraw your energy from the story. And it was as if I, I felt like... Um, I felt like I was pulling away energetically from the story whereas before I felt just kind of all wrapped around it, entwined with it. So there was this, he said, withdraw your energy from the story and place your total attention on the experience of anger in the body or the mind which wherever the anger, the experience of anger is most predominant. So bring mindfulness to that experience of anger and know it as the arising and passing away and the changing in between of, for example, the experience of heat in the body or in the mind, the experience of tightness or tension in the body or in the mind, the experience of roughness or smoothness in the body or in the mind. So we begin to see this experience in a in more of an impersonal way, noticing the arising, changing, passing away. This is what is investigated, this arising, this changing, this passing away, I'm on a moment to moment level. And so <clears throat> Manindra used to say that if we have this kind of investigation in our um, intensive practice like this, then it really helps us to be interested in many other things in life, as he was. And I notice that the interest in this investigation that has been developed in my own practice has transferred to other things in life, to especially the Dhamma, of course, and understanding the Dhamma more by reading things, by reading more texts, and understanding the, the Abhidhamma or Buddhist psychology. Uh, become uh, there's become a greater interest for me in doing that. Manindra is known, I think, when he, he died last year, and there was a write up about him. And it was Menindra. it was uh, Joseph who said about Manindra that one of the qualities that we notice most about him is his childlike curiosity, and this came from his investigation, from his. Investigative mind—he had that that one quality, really very strong in his in his personality. So curious about American culture when he first came to America. He, um, as I mentioned the other evening, when he stayed with us when he was uh, recovering from an operation. He would like to watch television programs. He was so curious about nature, of course, and anything that showed what American culture was all about. He even made me change the date of our day of our weekly sitting on Maui because it it um, interrupted or it interfered with the nature program that he wanted to watch. It was just so important to him to watch that nature program. And he loved to have control over the television, um, you know, the channel changer. And he he also loved to watch um, wrestling. I I was just so... (laughs) thought, when I saw him watch wrestling and do all of his stuff, I thought, this is truly a guy thing, you know. He wouldn't be any different than any other guy. I mean, a little more refined, you know, in his... (laughs) And um, even watch the soapbox, and I. But I always try to convince him that all of America is not like what's on the soapbox operas. But he would watch all of that. He would also like to see what was in the stores, and he would read the labels and ask, "What is this for? What is that for?" And he liked this one particular place that um, I would go to for a lot of things. Are are drugstore, Long's Drugs. We, we would even buy onions there and milk and things like that. And he would love to get um, umbrellas and little rubber sandals to bring back home to the people who lived with him and around him. And he loved to go to Long's. And the, the, just the kind of... He wouldn't buy everything or not much sometimes, but he would just like to look around and one time I brought him there after this particular surgery and um, I parked the car and he was laying in the seat, I had the seat down and he had this uh, wound, this open um, surgery on his, uh, on his abdomen and I said, kind of whispered because I didn't want to make it too apparent that I was at Long's and um, <laughs> I stopped to get his prescriptions, and so stopped the car, and he had his eyes closed, and I said, Munindraji, I'm going to get your medicines, and he said, okay. He was like this, leaned back, and then he said, where are we? (laughs) And I said, longs. And he, from his seat, from laying down, he came up and he said, "Shopping." <laughs> he was just all ready to go. We're not developing that kind of investigation here, but <laughs> but that's a kind of um, curiosity that we can have in our moment-to-moment experience. Um, If investigation is weak, it is said that thinking arises. If investigation on moment-to-moment experience is weak, there's lots of room, there's lots of space for thinking to arise. And then, of course, doubt arises. We don't know which one starts another. It kind of gets to be a vicious cycle. And doubt paralyzes us, as you know. I think... um, there was a talk on doubt or some some talk on doubt uh, that sharon gave some b- part of her talk we lose confidence in ourselves and this is when we find um we, we find ourselves blaming you know something that the weather the food uh, our fellow yogis the staff or whatever just you know moments of um Cavetching and whinging. Um, and so when that happens to me, I look to see if there's any doubt. Doubt is there when we're over-intellectualizing, when there's a kind of blaming out there of what's happening, or blaming our even ourselves, our past, for not practicing well enough. Or um, it could be uh, indecisiveness, Uh, confusion. Doubt is sometimes at the root of this. It's helpful to just note and name doubt as doubt. You know, when we uh, don't have enough uh, wherewithal to understand what's going on, I just, and I don't know what hindrance is going on, I just come back to the hindrance of doubt. Could this be doubt? I mean, um bringing it back to that very pristine understanding of it, feeling doubt in that moment. And if doubt is too overwhelming, what I try to do is bring my attention to something that there can be no doubt about. For example, the breath. So bringing it to just one breath, or as as Joseph might have already said, just a half breath just bringing it to this in-breath and then to the out-breath. Or it could be to just one step. I remember when I went to my first long retreat in Australia, even at the beginning of the retreat, I wanted to go home already. You know, I this the, the great thing that I have is homesickness, yearning for home. Um, and so... I had to keep it really, really simple. And that's, uh, you know, I began to doubt that I could do the practice. Usually it's doubt in oneself, doubt in the practice, or doubt in the teacher. But for me, usually it's doubt in how, if I can do the practice at all. So coming back to being really simple, and I remember being in the garden of that monastery that I was at. Actually, it was a Catholic monastery, a nunnery. And I, um, where this Buddhist retreat was held at, and I was walking on the path, and I said, as I usually uh, reflected, I thought, I'm going to be mindful from here to the end of the path, you know, about 15 or 20 steps. And that would always not happen, of course. So then I said to myself, okay, I'm just going to be mindful from here to this one little place ahead. And I would notice a rock, or a, a little pebble, or a leaf, or even just take one step, just keeping it really simple, one step at a time, one breath at a time, short moments, many times. So this is the uh, that quality of investigation in the present moment, moment-to-moment investigation. Investigating bringing the attention to the possibility for wisdom to arise, the wisdom of seeing anicca dukkha Nata in every moment, not intellectually but experientially. So the second energizing factor is effort or energy. And this is not the effort to change what's happening, not the effort to get rid of what's happening, Not the effort even to gain anything or to get anything. It's the effort precisely to be present. Just that. It's the effort to be in this moment. So again, short moments, many times. And this effort is usually um, talked more about as persevering effort. Gentle effort. Balanced persevering effort. In our achievement oriented culture, for many of us, and at different times, it's often the effort to settle back, to give more space, and not to kind of chase after or to so much to strive. It's more resting in the moment, receiving the moment very clearly. So it's that kind of effort to receive, to relax around, and then that um, moment can be experienced more clearly. Um, when we were last in Burma, Steve and I, we... Um, well, Steve had noticed a book for a long time written by Mahasi Sayadaw, the one, our, uh, what we call our great-grandfather teacher in this tradition, and he had written two volumes of uh, books called How to Practice Vipassana, and so um, to make a long story short, we started to have these translated in English because these are like the secret teachings of our, our tradition, but they aren't really that secret. They're just so downright simple. And so I'd like to read to you from part of the translation in English about this uh, effort or energy called Wiriya um, So Mahasi says, When you note an object or notice an object, you should exert moderate effort or energy. This is Wiriya." If you begin your practice with too much energy, you will become overzealous and then restless later on. And your practice will not improve as much as possible. On the other hand, if you begin your practice with too little energy, your effort will not be strong enough for your practice to improve, and you will become lethargic. So you should exert a moderate effort in practice, reducing effort when it is too strenuous and boosting energy when it is too weak. Then you won't be restless because your effort is excessive or lethargic because your energy is deficient. This kind of moderate energy is considered viriya sambujanga the enlightenment factor of energy. So if it's too much, if there's too much diligence, there will be tiredness, there will be exasperation. There will be a feeling of witheredness in the mind, as if you needed some water you know to the the some dhamma water to kind of help you to go on. Sometimes, I notice in myself and other um, fellow yogis that the spiritual urgency is wonderful that we have this urgency for release from greed hatred and delusion the urgency for understanding deeply the ur- urgency for liberation this is wonderful but it's driving us so much that it it begins to be a kind of restless energy i came across some i've been reading a some poems from this book um daughters of an of emptiness poems from Chinese Buddhist nuns that have been inspiring to me. Written by Beata Grant or or compiled by her. And there is this one that has to do with this kind of spiritual urgency, this kind of Dhamma energy. This was written by uh, a Chinese nun called Jinxing. She entered the nunnery as a young girl. And she had a reputation for her wisdom and insight expressed in simple and straightforward language. So she said, I urge those of you who aspire to enlightenment. In aspiring to enlightenment, you must be diligent. If your mind is not completely sincere, you will wallow forever in the bitter sea. The great earth is vast and without limit. And sentient beings are too many to count, yet how many people are there with the sense to leap out of the bitterness of samsara. And so we, we, have, we see this, we feel this from other people sometimes, and we have this hope, and we have this urgency to, to leap out, to be free, to be off the wheel of suffering. But sometimes when it's too much we can get weary and so we need to watch that and to settle back a little bit, to relax and to trust the Dhamma. When when I would get like this um, either Munindra or Upandita would say in their different ways the Dhamma is carrying you. You don't have to worry. The, the Dhamma is carrying you. And so that's how it is with with each and every one of us, without a doubt, without exception. The very fact that we're here, the Dhamma is carrying us. If there's too little energy, the mindfulness is feeble. Sometimes I I would report, and Upandita would know, because the connecting may be uh, too weak, or maybe the sustaining is weak. We would have to report on how how the connecting, the energy around connecting to the object is, how the energy around sustaining with the object is. And he would simply say, very directly, mindfulness is too feeble. You know, just just like that. No mincing words, no trying to couch it in some some nice words so you won't be hurt. But, you know, I and I really appreciate that. I, you know, I wish that... Uh, I could be like that, and we all could be like that more, so that we you, you just get it you know that just bring a little more energy to the present moment when the object is not connecting to the present to the uh when mindfulness is not connecting to the object of the present moment you it it 's felt it 's like the object is hazy. And it, it, it just feels like there is this slipperiness. The aim and the the arrow to wh- what is happening may be strong, but it just feels like it reaches the object and in in the first part of practice it feels like it's slipping off. There's not enough energy to even touch the object. When it's just the right amount of energy, the mind is light, the object is clear, it feels very balanced, and there is a sustaining of attention on the object until there is this ability to notice how the object disappears, or does it? Does it get? Uh, does it gain in its strength or clarity? Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? So there's always this um, questioning, or we have to report. Uh, um, what happens to the object when it is noted. Sri Ramana Maharshi, one of the most respected Indian um, persons of our time, said, no one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. So the third energizing uh, Factor is delight or joyful interest. Sometimes it's called piti or rapture. In the text, it says it's this uplifting feeling. It's like walking in a desert, in a dry desert, and you feel parched, and uh, your throat and mouth feel parched, and you feel thirsty, and in the distance, you see some water. And it's sort of like you feel energized in that moment. It's characterized by interest and delight in what's happening even if it's only momentary there's a sense of lightness and agility in the mind. there's an infusion of energy that you haven't felt before It's like a an energy that's kind of running through the practice. It's not a big up and down but it's more of a um, a thread of energy through your practice. the mind feels very workable. Sometimes this rapture uh, manifests as goosebumps and chills. So these are some of the ways that you might recognize it in your own practice. Sometimes it's more intense, like there's lightning coming through the body, this kind of electricity coming through the body, swift, swiftly, and you don't know what happened Sometimes just sitting there very quietly, it feels like a wave came and lifted the whole body off the ground. And there's this kind of rocking feeling, like you can't uh, feel the hardness of the buttocks touching the seat. It's like a softness and almost a floating feeling. There's a lightness of the body, and a lightness of the mind begins to happen. Uh, during these times. And this leads to the stabilizing qualities. It's said that um, calm and tranquility come out of this rapture when this kind of rapture is not, when there's not a development of attachment to this feeling of rapture. We can get stuck in rapture like being in a parking lot sometimes for years, not going anywhere because it just feels so good, you know, these uh, tingling and this kind of um, vibrations in the body, rocking, swaying, and all of that. So the stabilizing factor of calm and tranquility is like um, we see the water in this parched uh, feeling, being in a desert, we come close to the water and we drink the water. And then it's the feeling of, oh, just kind of a groundedness in in the body and in the mind. Restlessness becomes absent. Their mind feels sa- settled, not disturbed, very clear. There's a brightness of mind. It's characterized by coolness and ease of mind. There's a... Um, a kind of background sense of contentedness when tranquility is there. Even when moving, it feels that calm can be there. Um, of course, we don't feel it all the time, but sometimes, uh, sometimes there is a rattling and we go back to being unmindful for a few moments and then mindfulness comes in again and then the energizing factors and then the tranquilizing factors. We begin to see at this time that the urge to control what's happening is futile. We just surrender. We begin, this kind of surrender happens now. Each moment, in each moment, there's a more natural surrender. It's at this time when it's like a still forest pool and it reflects everything that's going on very clearly. So we see, we begin to see True nature. It's um, when Kabir says, when eyes and ears are open, even leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. So we begin to see from every side there are Dhamma uh, teachings from nature, from every side. But be careful because um, there can be even too much excitement in this Dhamma uh, understanding. Uh, the Dhamma lessons that come from nature. And then the mind gets restless again. The second stabilizing factor is concentration or one-pointedness. It develops out of calm and tranquility. It takes all of the energy of the mind and gathers it and puts it squarely on the passing present moment. There's a great, unification of the mind-body-energy, and there's a great steadiness at this time. So just um, Mahasi's words are very clear. He says, When noting one object after another, the mind is focused on the objects from moment to moment. This is the type of concentration that enables one to perceive mental and physical phenomena, in terms of both their unique characteristics and their universal characteristics of impermanence, uh, suffering, uh, or unsatisfactoriness, and um, the impersonality of everything, this kind of momentary concentration—momentary concentration—that is involved in each and every moment of noting is considered samadhi sambujanga, the factor of concentration. So this is a very powerful concentration on changing objects. And we develop deeper and deeper continuity. Even the jhanic factors are developed. The ones that I believe that um, Guy talked about the other evening. The jhanic factors are also developed in this kind of concentration on changing objects they are developed through continuity. Not continuity of the same object, but continuity of sati, of mindfulness, uh, on changing objects. So that is concentration. And the last of the stabilizing factors is equanimity. Equanimity, a, a longer talk will be given later but this is often called the doorway to peace because at this time in the practice which is called um, Sankara Upeka, that means equanimity at all of all formations, all phenomena that are arising and passing away, there is a, a great balance spacious stillness. Stillness meaning that there is no reactivity to any object that is arising. Equanimity is sometimes described as stilling the mind before it falls into extremes. The extremes are, um, you know, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow, those extremes in the world or that come up in our own minds. So the far enemy of equanimity is reactivity. It's when we're reacting with either uh, attachment or aversion to whatever is coming up in the present moment. It's when the inner and outer conditions are accepted with great balance and non-reactivity that this equanimity arises. And it uh, one begins to see in a in a more beautiful, clear way, what's happening? In the Majjhima I came across this one beautiful example of equanimity. Raindrops on slightly sloping lotus leaf roll off and do not remain there. In the same way, when equanimity is established, anything at all agreeable, disagreeable, or both, just as quickly And easily do not remain in the mind. So, when there is a non reactivity, there can be a total connection with what's happening, actually, a clearer connection. So, it's not a distance to what is going on. The far enemy of equanimity is called apathy, it's not an apathy. It's not a distance or a not caring with what is going on. It's a, a total being thereness with what's happening, inwardly or outwardly, but without adding, without going into the reactivity of clinging to it if it's likable or pushing it away if it's not likable. Um, somebody said to me, which was beautiful, about equanimity it's all about. Um, I love you and goodbye. <laughs> That's what aloha, two, wor- two things that aloha means. I love you, goodbye. You know, But I, I would add something in between. There's this love, this total connection, this metta-like connection with whatever's happening. There's this ability to see it clearly so that if there is need for action, there can be action with wisdom with compassion. If there is a need for non-action, because that is the best way, then there's a possibility for that also. And then there is this ability to let go of our attachment to the result of our action. This take the action, but let go of attachment to result. So this happens with us in the world, being able to be with what's going on, totally, clearly, without reactivity, uh, spaciously, wisely, seeing clearly, taking action or non-action, and then letting go of our attachment to result. So equanimity is not about standing to the side and just saying, oh, there's equanimity and doing nothing. It's about doing something if we need to, but um, letting go if also we need to. In the suttanipata, it says, when there is nothing in the world that can trigger agitation, then one is free from the pain of longing or the pain of suffering. So all these qualities are being developed as we simply follow the instructions of mindfulness. One of the last things that the Buddha said was, um, and I'd like to end with this, you are the light, you are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. So let's sit for a moment. So may we recognize, acknowledge, take refuge, and have faith in these qualities of awakening that are within our own hearts and minds.